0: and welcome to staff picks the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds where we answer the all important question what are the most underrated and underloved movies out there as always my name is Mario Lanza and on this episode of the show we'll be doing something a little different because you may have noticed in the past i tend to uh dwell perhaps a little bit on uh Movies from long ago, I tend to pick things that are maybe 20 to 30 years old and I talk about them. And that's one of the criticisms I can see maybe popping up about the show. All you do is talk about old stuff. How about some modern stuff? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because we are going to change that up a little bit today. We are going to be talking about a movie from only three years ago. This is a uh, very tense paranoia horror movie called The Invitation from 2015, and I have a very special guest to bring on. This is a, uh, he's a friend of mine, he's a sci-fi and horror author, and he's uh, one of my closest friends online. We are forever bouncing movie recommendations off one another, usually horror movies, and this is one that he recommended to me a couple years, or like uh, just last year, and I loved it. I love this movie so much, so I'm bringing him on to talk about it. Please welcome my good friend, Matt Carter
1: pleasure to be here mario i've been looking forward to this opportunity
0: (laughs) yeah like i said matt and i go way back we uh at least 15 years we've been friends online and like like i said we're always bouncing movies off one another and uh is it it's is it always horror movies we're always sending to one another uh more often than
1: not i know we've recommended a couple odds and ends you've recommended some comedies to me that have become huge favorites um walk hard oh that's (laughs) one of my all-time favorites now you introduced me to a pop star or even some older stuff like a fish called wanda and top secret i wouldn't have seen them if it weren't for you so i'd say we're good oh and the room <laughs> you know the room before it, before it became cool
0: yeah uh, very proud i introduced another person to the room
1: oh exactly it's become a, a virus i've tried to introduce it to as many people yet you, you got to infect the world with the room <laughs> um in wait for the fever to die down right now of course <laughs>
0: I would say, well, again, we're we're going really obscure. When I have Matt on the show, and I will say I'm probably going to have Matt on quite a bit. He's going to be one of my more frequent guests just because of our history. But I am so proud of some of the movies I've recommended to him. And, again, like the invitation is going to come from him to me. But the one that I'm most proud of for Matt is Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, which is a movie that maybe like ten people on the face of the earth know. You love that yes. one, yes? Right?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, only watched it the one time, but – we're get, you and me, we got to do an episode about that one in the near future. That is a gem, I swear.
0: <laughs> okay, so, yeah, just I'm just warning people right now, get used to Matt being on the show, because Matt and his wife, Fiona, are going to be very frequent guests, because they are my, my horror posse, I would say. <laughs> oh, glad to do it. Hey, don't forget Michael. He's uh, another one of the good ones. <laughs> All right, Michael Feeney, yes. we. Have, it's a whole little group of friends here. So, anyway, the movie here... The Invitation from 2015, and I know there's a couple other movies called The Invitation over the history of cinema. A couple people have asked me, which one is it? Which one? You said you're doing The Invitation. Which one? This is the one from 2015. Uh, What else can you say to clarify this one, Matt? What stands out about this one that would get people to identify it? Well,
1: this is the one I would call the movie that could have easily been an Oscar-bait drama if it didn't end in a bloody massacre.
0: (laughs) Yes, as is true for so many movies out there.
1: Oh, exactly. I mean, this one, it is a paranoia thriller like no other, especially if you are a kind of person like me, and I'm guessing a little like Mario, who has some social anxiety (laughs) issues, and if you ever feel awkward in a room full of strangers or even a room full of friends, this is a movie that's going to really hit you to the core.
0: Yeah, it's one—how did you first come across this one? Because I will freely admit, most of the movies on Staff Picks, I've seen dozens of times. We've I talked about Top Secret. I've seen that 200 times, I'm sure. I've talked about, uh what else, the Brady Bunch movie. I've seen that so many times, My Bodyguard. This movie, The Invitation, I've only seen three times. And one of them was just last summer when Matt sent it to me. So how did you come across this for the first time?
1: I'm always on the lookout for new horror movies because— I've learned over the years that most of the, a lot of the best stuff that comes out these days doesn't get the widest theatrical releases. So I kind of just prowl around, you know, check out lists of great underloved horror movies and see which names come up a bunch. Do a bit of research and, you know, if I hear enough good things or if it just sounds like something that has anything in it that I would enjoy, I go for it. Um, I'm pretty easy to please, so that, you know, winds up getting a list of about 100 movies at any given moment I need to check out. Um, but this one was on my radar for a little bit, but not really high on my radar. And then not long after it started getting on the radar, my dad died. Mm -hmm. And since this is a movie that's really about uh, grief and coping with uh, an unexpected death of someone you loved. I wanted to give it a chance because it spoke to me and I'm really glad I did because for anyone who has ever lost anybody in their lives, this movie is going to speak out because one of the big things about it is how people deal with death and how some people deal with it a lot better than others.
0: Yeah. And again, I I have to say that a recommendation from Matt is a big deal because you do this for a living. You actually write horror books.
1: I do my best.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying you have a little more street cred than I do in this crate in this uh, realm here.
1: Well, you, you helped feed my obsession, so, you know, so long as we work back and forth with each other, I think we got some pretty good stuff going on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I will say, okay, so Matt recommends a lot of horror movies to me, and he said, hey Mario, there's this one my wife and I saw called The Invitation, and he said, uh, I ha- I'll let you borrow it if you want to take a look at it, and he even warned me, he said, it's kind of a slow burn, and that's one of the things, this this movie might not be for everybody, it's not gratuitous. There's not a quick payoff. It's very much a, you have to invest some time in the first hour for the second hour to pay off. But he even warned me, he goes, you may not like it. And again, I've seen some horror movies over the years that are slow that I couldn't really warm to. This was not one of them. This one I took to immediately. I just love the slow build of tension. And again, it's one that I I immediately showed my daughter. I'm big on I'm always trying to introduce my daughter to horror movies and stuff, and I I try to elevate her to a little better class of horror movie than, like, the slash and dash you're going to get in the theaters growing up as a kid now. And she took to this one, too. My wife loved it. I loved it. My daughter loved it so much, she went out and introduced it to her boyfriend the very next day, which is, like, the highest compliment a kid could give that I introduced this movie to my significant other. So, again, uh, is there anything I'm forgetting about this story? I know you you were a little wary of thinking I might not like it.
1: Well... As I say, I know I'm pretty easy to please, but I also know you have some very particular tastes in horror, and I know you and I actually tend to disagree about as much as we agree on horror movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I kind of just like to hedge my bets when making a recommendation. I was pretty sure you'd like this one, but again, it is a slow burn of slow burns, which, as you said, it is not a movie for everyone. But if you're the kind of person who likes a slow burn and you're willing to wait for the payoff this is one of the best movies for it because oh man <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just it's just digging the screws in for about an hour and then for another half hour
0: exploding
1: and it's it's just wonderful
0: now was this movie actually in theaters i know this is a straight indie movie was this did it this actually get a theatrical release or what exactly I, happened with it
1: i know it was on the festival circuit that much i was able to confirm i mean it did not make any money really to speak of, so I imagine it may have just made the festival circuit and uh, then just went direct to video. If there are any huge Invitation fans out there who can contradict us, feel free to do so. But, (laughs) as I say, I didn't know about it until it was on DVD.
0: Now, in trying to describe this movie to people who may not be familiar with it, which is going to be everybody um mm-hmm. what how would you describe this movie the first thing that I would say off the top of my head is that it's a it's it's not so much a horror movie as it is a paranoia movie would you agree with that
1: I would agree with that entirely I would say it falls with the exception of the last half hour it falls more under about the thriller genre because it's not about what you see it's about what your mind puts together given the limited evidence you have on screen and this is a movie that is just absolutely brilliant at giving out only as much information as to make you come to about five or six different possible conclusions and there are some obvious conclusions but some
0: of those obvious conclusions are more right than others the one thing i noticed the movie does really well is it builds up like basically i'm just giving you a short version here of people that are listening that it's these this couple goes to a dinner party and as the party goes along, they start to suspect something sinister is going on. And it's one of those things that the filmmaker, just the way they, they present the movie, where the suspicions grow and grow and grow, and then they're suddenly dispelled. Oh, never mind. I was just being silly. And then the tension's gone. And then they start growing and growing and growing. And it happens a couple times. Is that Would that be an accurate way to describe it?
1: Yeah, it's this cycle of, of build and release. It's build and release. I mean, this is... What I call my porno theory of horror uh, is that uh, horror in general is about building up to a moment and then giving you the big release. It's the buildup and it's the release, except it's blood instead of other bodily
0: fluid. <laughs> well, you know, uh, both, both the porn movie and the horror movie usually end with <laughs> fluids being splattered on someone's face.
1: Exactly. <laughs> this movie, it does that, but instead of the cheap jump scare that usually does it, it's just building on social anxiety and social awkwardness of somebody at a dinner party being afraid of saying the wrong thing, so the wrong thing isn't said, even though you know, saying it might actually save some lives, because up until the end we don't know what exactly is going on, and it's it's a pretty intense at building that up.
0: Now, can you think of any movies that are kind of a comparison for this? I, I I am a big fan of paranoia movies. They almost always work with me. I just love them so much because they're always... There's so much restraint showed in a, in a paranoia movie that the director will not play their hand real early. They love to, to delay the gratification. And I was kind of thinking, like, Arlington Road is a good comp for this, Invasion of the Body Snatchers...
1: I would go with The Stepford Wives. Mm-hmm. Um, even if we want to go a little more contemporary, we go Get Out, though that one's a little bit more on the comedy side than this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know, as you've mentioned, The Wicker Man, I think The Wicker Man is an excellent comparison because it's definitely weird going on here, but there's a whole lot of stuff that could be said, you know, reasonable explanations right until things become absolutely insane.
0: Yeah, and I just want to clarify for people listening. When we talk about The Wicker Man, there's not a yeah. chance in hell we're talking about this Nicolas Cage abortion remake they made. So there's a, <laughs> there's there's an original Wicker Man, which is one of the greatest suspense paranoia movies ever made, and I am guarantee we'll be talking about it someday. But please, please do not think we're talking about the Nicolas Cage one.
1: No, I mean, I may have ironically quoted it in my wedding vows, but I would never <laughs> actually call it anything worth watching in any serious way,
0: you had a you had a bee attack at your wedding too.
1: Uh, I actually somehow worked into my vows the phrase "How did it get burned?"
0: But... <laughs> and this is why we have Matt on my show, ladies and gentlemen, right there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right, so let's delve into the plot a little bit here, and right. uh, and then we'll uh, we'll put you on the spot as we'll start mentioning how it correlates with your dead father. Because I'm sure you're very excited to talk about that.
1: Oh yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Matt and I have a dark sense of humor, so we may get a little dark on some of these. Just get ready for this.
1: Yeah, we'll get serious and then we'll laugh. That's how we roll.
0: Exactly. It's the, the porn theory of horror movies, the build up and then the release.
1: Exactly.
0: All right, so uh, to start this movie, basically it's the story of a couple, Will and Kira, and they have been invited to this house up in the Hollywood Hills for a party. And, Which
1: uh, I want to I interject on one point there. We talk about the Hollywood Hills and we know the Hollywood Hills, but for those who don't, It sounds like this is an area that's going to be really packed full of people, that it's not really a horror movie location. But if anyone who's who's listening has ever actually driven through the Hollywood Hills, you know that this is a freakishly remote area of tight, winding roads and houses that are far apart. And it gives this illusion like you've got help nearby, but this is a
0: freakishly isolated area in a major downtown area. locale yeah and i matt absolutely knows this because he lives very close to there and it's funny i my wife and i just do a thing we live in southern california and we do a thing where we randomly every so often just pick a house on airbnb and just go stay there for the weekend it's just kind of a, a vacation away from home just the two of us and literally like two summers ago we were out in eagle rock which is very much i'm guessing that's probably where this movie was set somewhere around eagle rock or something like that
1: I think this one actually, and they showed the actual Hollywood sign in the background at one point, okay. so they were probably
0: actually close to the hills, but um, it's still similar geography. Yeah, that was my first time ever out in that area in the Hollywood Hills, and, and Matt's absolutely right. Like, you go out at night and kind of look around, and it's, you're so isolated. Like, it's shocking. You're up in this canyon, and like, there's nobody near you from time to time, and the, what, the, the uh, roads are all winding and dark and creepy. Like, it's a very eerie area you wouldn't expect to be just outside of los angeles
1: yeah i mean you think la you think big roads full of cars but these are you know one lane roads that just snake and it is very difficult if you had to get out in a hurry it would be next to impossible
0: yeah And that does tie into the movie. The movie's kind of about isolation. It's going to become very important here. Exactly. So Will and Kira have been invited to a party up at this uh, house, this uh, big rich house in the Hollywood Hills, and it's being thrown by Will's ex-wife, Eden. And it's the first time in two years he has seen Eden. Basically, long story short, he and Eden, when they were married five years ago, they had a son named Tyler who died in a tragic accident. He died. He died in a birthday party. He was hit with a bat, a baseball bat while they were trying to uh, do a pinata and their son died. And basically their marriage fell apart after this. They just fell into the stages of grief. Eden, the wife tried to kill herself and just all sorts of things. Then they, they basically, as happens in many cases, the couple had a, a tragic loss. They could not live with that anymore. They divorced, and. Uh, Will has not seen Eden in two years. She's been down in Mexico, apparently doing God knows what. And all of a sudden she's back in town. She's throwing this party. And this is the first time he's seeing his estranged ex-wife since, I mean, in like two years, correct?
1: Correct. And uh, she has a new man in the picture as well, David, who he she met down in Mexico, but under very ambiguous circumstances. However, these are very nice people. We have nothing to be suspicious of yet. Eden is nice and happy again. David is nice, quite happy. And at this party are a bunch of old friends whom David and – or sorry, who Will and Eden have fallen out of contact with over the years because you know, this is one of those things that you learn when someone's died in your life. The people around you often have a hard time figuring out how they're supposed to treat you. Mm-hmm. I mean it's a matter of, as I say – my dad died a couple years ago. I discovered this movie not long afterward, and this movie is uncanny at showing how even some of your best friends, people you've known your whole life, they just look at you and pause and very carefully try to choose their words because, you know, it's the that question of, okay, I'm seeing this person for the first time in a while or the first time since this has happened, do I treat them with kid gloves? Do they not want me to treat them with kid gloves? And, you know, Will, as he's becoming reacquainted with a lot of his old friends, you can just see this, you know, look passing between them of, hey, uh, how you doing? <laughs> you know, are, are you better yet?
0: Uh, cool. Yeah, when Matt's father died, I mean, we didn't know how to respond. I just blocked Matt on Facebook. I thought that was the appropriate response oh yeah (laughs) i'm like i just don't want to deal with this guy anymore he's all damaged
1: oh exactly yeah i was you know wailing mess throwing things out the window cutting my skin off and uh, i'm good it was it was a tough period but you know i'm better for it learning a lot of things and i can talk very well about the invitation
0: for it so i'm happy (laughs) so anyway they get to this party and it's up in the hollywood hills and it's in a very isolated location. They're in a house. It's a a big house up in the hills. It's like a one-way road to get there. There's no phone reception. This is a big thing. And this is true from my experience when I was in Eagle Rock. It was a very, sh- very shoddy uh, phone reception signal. Like, that's not out of character for this area. You're up in the hills, and it is remote. It's tough for anybody to reach you if you're in a hurry. And this is going to become very significant in the plot here.
1: Oh, exactly. And of course, uh, you know, one of the things that kind of leaps out as this weird point is right before they get there, they hit this coyote. And, you know, people say, wait, coyotes live in Hollywood. Oh, yeah. I mean, we have a very varied wildlife around here.
0: I was going to say it's funny. One of the comparisons you made to this movie is Get Out and Get Out is really similar to The Invitation, right down to the fact that there's a mercy killing of an animal right at the start, which I think is kind of amusing.
1: I was, yeah, I was going to make a joke about that, wondering if that's suddenly this new trope that's popping up all of a sudden of we're going to give characters, you know, you're going to understand the characters in a horror movie only if they mercy kill an animal that they hit on the road. I'm just starting to see this pop up in like every movie that's going to come up from now on.
0: Make sure to put this scene like that in all of your books. I think that would be important.
1: Oh, yeah. Every time every every time, right at the beginning of the book, you're going to understand the characters because someone, someone runs over an animal and has to mercy kill them.
0: Yeah, I actually heard that in the new Jurassic Park movie, there's a mercy killing of a T-Rex at the start. Oh, good. <laughs> Go ahead. Explain that scene. They hit the coyote. And what happens?
1: You know, they're freaked out and will very calmly, very, you know, you know, this is a weird thing for him because you don't kill a coyote on a daily basis, but takes a look at it, takes a tire iron out. Mercy kills it, and drags it off to the side of the road. And this is a, you know, traumatizing, shocking experience. But he looks like a guy who completely understands what's going on here, which is kind of nice foreshadowing into the kind of person he winds up being. The stuff he's been through and what he's capable of doing because of it.
0: Yeah. And I should point out that this will become a very prominent theme in this movie that, you know, death is good. Death leads to a better place.
1: Yeah, that's. I'll get into it when we get into it, but one of the best things about this movie is it doesn't sugarcoat the process at all. It does not make horror movie death look cool, but we'll get into that later when we get into the part that's in my notes called The Orgy of Death. But we're (laughs) not there yet. Yeah, i got all sorts of great metaphors here. If you're
0: still keeping it PG-13, though. So we get to the party, and, uh, you know, Will is kind of half on board with this party. He's not sure. He's ready to be it. this is his old house he's visiting. He's with his old ex-wife in the house where their son died. Like, he's really not ready to be here. He's kind of half on board. And he gets there, and they get to the party— and, again, the party's made up of a bunch of their friends and then the Eden, his, ex new, his ex-wife, and then David, her new husband. And right off the bat, it's kind of weird. Like, Will doesn't want to be there. It's just a weird vibe. And there's this weird, creepy girl with no pants on hanging around in the bathroom, Sadie. <laughs> so right off the bat. Yep, that would be uh Yeah, that, that is a party killer uh, for the most part, the pantsless girl. I mean, some would say that's a plus. I would say that's a, me- a negative in a party. I would call that a negative, especially when she shares a name with one of the members of the Manson family. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to get some good Manson parallels in this movie. I don't want to spoil too much, but we're going to get to a point in this podcast where the spoilers are unavoidable. We just have to say it, but we're going to do our best to kind of walk you along, experience this movie as if you're watching it for the first time.
1: Exactly. So he's at the party and they're meeting friends and there's, you know, a lot of basic characters here. He's got let's see, his old business partner whom he hasn't seen in a couple years. It seems to be indicated that the kid's death led to the dissolving of their business. Uh, old professor, friend of his, a very nice couple, Miguel and Tommy, and Gina, the party girl, who's very interesting because she's talking about Her boyfriend, Choi, who happens to be late for the party. Choi becomes kind of an interesting ticking timer throughout the course of the movie.
0: Yeah, Choi's kind of a neat character. Again, there's two things that happen right off the bat. We're up here in the Hollywood Hills. There's no phone reception. And apparently there's this guy named Choi who's supposed to be at the party. And everyone wonders where he is. And again, like Matt said, he will will become quite prominent in the storyline here exactly he's the late
1: boyfriend is one of the most interesting elements of tension in this movie that i cannot praise enough but we'll get to that when we get to that and commence with the awkward wine party time
0: okay so will and kira are here at the party and and again will is just unnerved by being in this house everything's a little off he doesn't like being here there's this new girl sadie who's from mexico apparently they met her down in mexico and she's like you know flitting around like a little flower child like why is she here what's going on with her and 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 Will notices there's like bars on the windows now. Like there weren't bars here before, what's up? And like David and the, the new homeowners like, well, you know, we just like to be safe here, like it's it's a kind of a dangerous area. It's and and again, the tension's gonna start right from the bat here, that something's a little off in this house.
1: Yeah. I mean because but we're we're very well put into Will's shoes here because he's already in an awkward position. He doesn't want to be here, so he is on the lookout for anything to be wrong. The thing is, things are actually wrong here, (laughs) but no one is fully willing to believe him because, you know, they understand, oh man, he's been through a trauma, this has got to be a weird experience for him, you know, he's just meeting his ex-wife's new husband, he's going to be weird, and they're thinking he's just being paranoid because of all of this, but, because they don't realize they're in a horror movie yet, of course.
0: (laughs) Of course, yeah, we're going to find out real soon, it happens quite early here in the movie that the weirdness is just going to increase because you know, Will is talking to his ex-wife for the first time, this lady Eden, and I don't know her name, but the actress who plays Eden, I think is really good in this. I just, it's one of those movies I haven't seen a hundred times, so I don't know all the actors and actresses, but like, she's got these crazy eyes, and she's kind of got this dippy little smile, and she starts talking about, you know, when I was in Mexico, I learned about pain. Pain is only temporary, and we don't need to exist with this pain, uh, Will. I've I've kind of found a way to deal with the death of our son, and you don't need to have pain either. It's this wonderful thing, and we can escape pain. And, and right off the bat, Will's like, are you in a cult? Did you go and join a GD cult? <laughs> and then basically, that's going to be the tension for the rest of this movie. Is this a cult initiation? Is that what this dinner is?
1: Which is great, because when it actually comes out in another scene or two, it reads at first like a timeshare pitch. Mm -hmm. It doesn't even read like a cult. It's like, you know, Scientology, like, let's get your money right away here and have a good time. But, and then we get to the latter part of that video.
0: (laughs) I'm hoping a lot of my listeners are familiar with cults. Now, we can talk about this a little bit. I, the big thing in the news lately is Scientology. You know, they had the big uh, Leah Remini expose on Scientology recently, and I have had my own experience with Scientology, and I I don't tell this story much, but it ties in so perfectly to this movie. Go for it. Yeah, when I was in college, I we uh, I, we had a course called New American Religions, which was basically cults. It was part of you had to take a religion class for uh, for to graduate from Santa Clara University, but they didn't make you take a Catholicism class. It could be about any religion, and I'm an atheist, so I'm like I don't want to take a Catholicism class. I'll take something goofy. So I took this cult class. And that was one of our things we had to do is you had to visit two different quote unquote new American religion and go to one of their training centers or meetings and report on it, write a little paper on what it was like. And so my wife and I, yeah, my girlfriend and I at the time, Diana and a couple of our friends went to a Scientology center. And I will say, I have never been as creeped out as I was in about hour and a half. We were in the Scientology center. It was the weirdest (laughs) thing, like. They put you in a room. Like, you say you want to come in there, and, like, I I don't really want to convert. I just want to learn a little bit about about Scientology. And so, like, they put us in this room, and they had us watch a video on, like, L. Ron Hubbard. And they kind of closed us in the room, and I swear to God I heard the door lock behind us. Like, we were kind of locked in a room. And I remember them just passing by in the door, looking at us, watching the video, making sure we weren't snooping around or walking around the center. And I'm like, this is one of the creepiest places I've ever been. And that could not be more fitting for this movie that... Cults in general are just kind of a creepy thing, and you don't realize that until you've had an experience with them a little bit. Have you ever, Matt, experienced a cult at all? Uh, Thankfully, no. Uh, Not to that extent. Uh, That was weird. Yeah, I... It was literally, watching this movie was like being back in that Scientology Center. Just kind of the way people watch you and kind of the smiles. It's just, it's an odd feeling when you're in this weird little world like that.
1: Well, I wanted to point out a detail that you said there that actually popped up in the movie was in addition to the bars on the windows, we have to keep noting that David religiously locks the front door of his house. And this is one of those keys on the inside lock that won't open otherwise. You know, he he blames it on, you know, wanting home security because there have been a lot of break-ins lately. And that's the thing. This is a movie. Everything that's creepy has a reasonable explanation Mm -hmm.
0: up until it doesn't. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so Will's at this party, and there's all these weird people there, and it's like, it just feels like his wife, his ex-wife has joined a cult. That's what it feels like. We're being pitched like, oh, we've we've reached a separate plane of consciousness where we get to give away all our grief. It's so amazing. We wish all you could join us. And it's like, Will's kind of looking around. Is like, is this a dinner party or is this a cult? And again, like Matt said, everything that's a little creepy, has an explanation. Oh, of course you were being locked in. That's just the way it goes because they want home security. Of course, there's bars on the windows. Of course, there's no cell reception. Choi, who knows where Choi is? Maybe he just got way late. He's late. And then, yeah, now it gets a little creepy because we meet my favorite character in the movie, Pruitt.
1: Oh, John Carroll Lynch. I mean, (laughs) that is just an inherently creepy guy. I mean, I hope he is the nicest guy in person. I get the impression he's the nicest guy in person because he plays amazing creepy characters and in, in this movie i mean he might as well be the terminator he's this just
0: big bearer of a man with this haunted haunted face yeah and for those who don't know him john Carroll lynch very well-known character actor i doubt you probably know him by name he's in a lot of movies where he plays a big creepy guy the one that pops into my head right off the bat is zodiac where he plays the suspect in the zodiac killings
1: yeah he's also done a couple seasons of american horror story here and there Played a creepy, creepy clown with missing his lower jaw called Twisty. <laughs> <laughs> twisty. That also, sounds like a perfect okay. role for him. And I think he also played John Wayne Gacy once. Yeah. Just put on the Chicago accent.
0: Well, of course, he got to start in the movie Fargo playing Norm, son of a Gunderson, who was not a creepy role. He was actually sympathetic. But yeah, ever since then, John Carroll Lynch just playing a litany of creepy guys. And in this one, he shows up at the party and he's about a good 20 years older than everybody else at the party. And he's like a foot taller than everyone. He just looks like a big, hulking muscle man. And his presence at this party is going to make things increasingly more ominous as the night goes along.
1: Yeah, because I'm sure everybody listening has been to a party at one point or another. And there's always that one friend who is connected to the fewest people. I know this because I was usually that guy. In most parties, I was Pruitt. Except, you know, I wouldn't kill anybody by the end of the night. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's just this extra realm of awkwardness. And it's easy to relate in theory to Pruitt until he starts being Pruitt. Yeah.
0: it's. I don't want to spoil this movie too much, but it's going to be impossible. We're going to give it away. I guess we've kind of given it away. Things are going to go poorly at this party. Let's just say it that way. But what's funny is how much richer... The viewing experience is when you watch this movie a second and a third time. Have you noticed that? Have you watched this movie several times by now?
1: Yeah, I watched it, I think, for about the fourth or fifth time this week. <laughs> and, and you know the little things that you see early on just add up more and more each time. And you, you just see how this movie is so layered with its foreshadowing and its creep
0: factors. I'm just getting shivers thinking about it. And I love it. Yeah, okay. Here's the first spoiler. I hate to do it, but we have to say it again. If you don't want to know the, how this movie ends, just stop this podcast here and go watch it. If you are curious or if you've already seen the movie, my favorite Pruitt moment is right here at the start when he arrives. He walks in, and the first thing he does is look around. How many people am I going to be killing tonight? Yeah. He does a head count.
1: Yeah, he is the the Terminator. Like I say, he is this very polite,
0: soft-spoken guy. You just look at him, and you know, I'm afraid of this guy. Yeah, he's the muscle. That's the thing. He is the muscle because... Our hosts, David and Eden, don't have the strength to overpower people if they resist. So this is why Pruitt is here. Pruitt is the muscle for when shit goes down tonight.
1: Oh, yeah. And it is going to go down in a hurry. But he is also the muscle for some of the most awkward moments, which we're also (laughs) going to get into shortly. Shall we get into, I want, uh, or no, we, we have to get into the video first. Yeah. Well, first we get, first we
0: get uh, David's, la- or Will's last suspicion. So Will is suspicious. It feels like a cult. It feels something weird here. The The doors are locked. The bars are over the windows. And then he sees his wife, Eden, has this giant bottle of pills that she's stashed away in a drawer. And at first, again, he thinks, he doesn't think it's anything ominous. He thinks, well, she must be dealing with the pain. That's the thing. She's still dealing with her son dying. Maybe she's overdosing on medication. Maybe she's self-medicating. So, again, this isn't ominous yet, but he has found, he sees that she has this bottle of pills, and it will become important later.
1: Oh, exactly. Especially when he, you know, does the standard snooping thing, takes a look at them, and sees, A, that the bottle is unmarked. So he swipes onto the pills and, B, takes it to their doctor friend and finds out they're pretty hardcore barbiturate.
0: Yeah. These are phenobarbital. And uh, Will's like, are these dangerous? Like, could these kill somebody? Are these, like, a, a bad thing? And the doctor's like, well, any pill is bad if you take enough of it. So it's not really – as a doctor, I can't really say a medicine is bad for you or any pill is bad for you, which, again, is a legitimate answer.
1: Yeah, but it's a giant bottle of unmarked pills. <laughs> That, you know, that's not one of those things that usually ends well, but, you know, I haven't been to enough parties in Hollywood, so what can I say? <laughs> such... That's a more normal yeah. thing in Hollywood wine
0: parties. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I was going to say that's one of the things that jumps out when you watch this movie is, is this a cult? Is this a freaky death cult? And then someone says, nah, this is just L.A. That's just a party in L.A. That's what they're all like.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I actually I got that underlined here in my notes because that's one of the most telling lines. And again... Most people who aren't from LA think LA people are weird. I get that. Most people from LA are also pretty much certain that people from LA are weird cuz a lot of us are. I'm not going to lie about that. Yeah. But this one this one's weird by LA standards. Got to note that part.
0: <laughs> Although I'm guessing just knowing you and knowing me, you and I are maybe the least likely people who have ever been invited to a big shot Hollywood party in the hills, correct?
1: Uh, more or less. I mean, <laughs> I've I've been to close things like this with my dad when I was a kid, but nothing Nothing like this. I haven't been to an actual wine party. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm such a nerd, such a like a stay-in-the-house-indoors nerd that I watch a movie like this, and I always think, oh, it's so cliche. People go to parties and drink wine and talk. Why do they put that in movies It's such a cliche? Not realizing that people actually do that. I just don't do that. I didn't realize people actually do stuff like that.
1: Yeah, well... They do, what can I say? I mean, yeah, you you and, you, and I don't drink, so I mean, this is like a foreign language to us, but... Oh,
0: yeah. We would have survived this movie, we would have been done quite well.
1: Yeah, exactly, <laughs> at least for the one part, but we'll get yeah. to it.
0: Not being invited to the party would have been my sole mechanism of survival. <laughs> yeah, me, I mean, you know, me and Fia would have been, oh, we're invited to this wine party, but it's in Hollywood, and,
1: you know, why don't we just watch, stay in and binge watch some more Mythbusters, huh? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that would have made the movie far less uh, satisfying, the Mythbusters subplot.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah, we'd be the ones they constantly cut back to for, you know, quote-unquote comic relief, but it's just two people sitting watching Mythbusters and laughing. Uh...
0: Here's Matt at home. He's and a third anyway. character. Okay, so now it's going to start getting a little more real. So we got Pruitt here, we got Sadie here, and now there's a scene where, oh my God, you guys are in a cult. Someone at the, in, the, in the dinner party mentions that. And David is like, uh, well, it's not a cult. It's just a. What I have his exact quote here, what he described what they're in. We're in this thing called the Invitation, and it's a group of people who come together. We've all lost someone in our lives, and we just, we help each other, and we learn how to get rid of our grief together. We're just a group of people that live out in the woods and do all these games together, but we're not a cult. That's silly, not a cult.
1: This is one where I want to jump out real quick to note to the Game of Thrones fans in the audience, the actor who plays David Uh, played Dario Naharis for a couple seasons there. He is every bit as smooth in this movie as he was on Game of Thrones, which, again, also makes David this character who doesn't seem trustworthy but is so nice, it's hard to doubt him sometimes, despite how clearly evil he actually is.
0: And he's very charming. He's a little over-the-top friendly, and again, that's kind of a theme in the movie. Why is everyone so friendly here? Everyone's all smiling and happy and, like, this is a weird party. Like, it's overly friendly. And that's the thing where David kind of says, oh, yeah, well, we're not a cult. But, you know, we are. We we have joined this little commune where we like to learn things and experience things. And, you know, we do have a video we'd like to show you. Funny you mention that. Here's a little video, our Scientology video you could watch. And it's funny because, like, the people at the party, some of the guests are like, oh, no, this is an initiation video. That's why the doors are locked. And they're, like, laughing about it, not realizing This is a little more serious than they realize.
1: Yeah, this is this is the intro to the intro, (laughs) (laughs) especially and yeah, we get to the video itself. The video is this perfectly pleasant thing with this very heaven's gate Jim Jones style guy, you know, just talking to people about how pain is optional, suffering is optional, and we are beautiful and communing, and we have a better understanding of our grief. And it's this, you know, very boilerplate video until it then cuts to this woman in bed, surrounded by people from this cult, just straight up dying. <laughs> we go from this beautiful boilerplate speech to, boom, suddenly someone just dies in front of us on camera. And as anyone who's had a shock video shown to them unexpectedly, this is a little bit shocking to these people. This is not exactly what they signed on for this evening. <laughs>
0: yeah, and this is the recruitment video for the cult. is a It's a literally a snuff video, you're watching a woman dying, and they're like, look at it, so beautiful. This is where we all transcend to a higher power. And yeah, so some of the party guests are like, you know, that's kind of creepy. And then you have the party guests who
1: try to give the benefit of the doubt, because these are such nice people. It's like, well, you know, I mean, this woman was dying of cancer, and she was surrounded by people who loved her. And I mean, I guess you could kind of see that as beautiful under a certain light. And that's, again, where it comes... What happened to them was unbelievably creepy, but it just feels weirdly reasonable, like a miscommunication for people who didn't come across the way they intended to.
0: I was going to say, here's something I only caught on the last viewing is as they're all watching the uh, recruitment video for the cult, you see Pruitt in the back just guarding the door, which I love. Pruitt, the muscle in the back there, just making sure nobody's going to bolt right him out now.
1: Oh, I hadn't noticed. I guess I got to watch that again to see that. Yeah.
0: Oh, darn. So they all watch this video, and, and do you remember the name of the cult leader, like the leader of their little uh, group?
1: I don't, so I just I, – he's the cult leader
0: to me. Dr. Uh, Joseph re- is his name.
1: Oh, Dr. Joseph. Oh, like Mengele. Great. Wonderful. <laughs> yes.
0: <Yeah. laughs> So, yeah, this whole video is all about Dr. Joseph's method and how he's found a way that people can escape grief. And, again, it's clear that uh, Eden and her new husband, David, have fallen right into this, that they've both suffered a loss. Eden lost her son. We don't know what happened to David, presumably something similar, right? They They said he lost his wife. Okay. Yeah, so they've fallen head over heels for this guy, which, again, is how these cults reach you is that they they will grab you at your lowest point and they'll offer you a promise of how to get away from that how to get away from the pain how to reach a better life and that's clearly what this guy dr joseph has been doing down in mexico is putting together this little cult where all these people grief-stricken people have fallen into it again probably with the best of intentions i don't think that eden and david realize there's anything nefarious or sinister about this they really think this guy really knows the truth he is he has freed us from our pain And again, as someone who just recently lost your father, you are, when a person suffers that kind of grief, you are in a place where you're very vulnerable to someone with those kind of teachings.
1: Oh, exactly. I mean, you know, again, I don't know who, you know, I don't know who's going to listen to this, but I'm assuming everybody's lost somebody, somebody even close. Odds just favor that. And when you can't cope with the pain, sometimes it just feels good to find an outlet, something that's just going to say, I'm going to turn this pain off. I mean, you know, this is another reason I'm glad I don't drink because I probably would have gotten into it. Mm -hmm. And if somebody just comes to you at that moment and says, I have the answers, I can take that pain away. I can see how it would be easy for some people to get into. I mean, you're absolutely
0: correct that he is he is
1: preying on these people with his ideology.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the things I learned in our cult class back in college is that that's something they do. ...to draw people into cults is they specifically seek out people who are wounded, damaged, things like that, that they can promise them, you know, uh, some kind of escape from that. And if a person isn't damaged, there was one, I forget if it was Est. I forget there was one uh, cult in the 70s, where they'd get all these people in a big warehouse... And they lock him in there and they basically just spend the next hour just berating them, telling them how horrible they are, just beating them down mercilessly, mentally. And then when they're down, then the cult leader comes in and says, well, I can offer salvation. I can like you and you need the people to be down before they can be drawn into the cult. So that's the thing. Some place, some cults will beat you down at the start just so you're in that spot where they can promise the salvation.
1: Exactly. And this guy just had the easy position of these people were just desperate and desperate people will do pretty much anything. Ugh, it's a dark movie, by the way, for
0: anybody who's yeah. having any thoughts on that. This is a dark movie masquerading as a slightly less dark movie. Yeah, and that's the thing, if you're just watching it, and I've heard some criticism of this movie, well, it doesn't go anywhere, nothing happens, it's boring. Well, what we're doing, is we're setting the stage of this movie. This is there's a very, very deliberate paced hour of learning these characters, learning why they are in the places that they, that they are, And all setting the stage for this collision at the end of everyone, I wouldn't say everyone thinking they're doing the right thing, but like the cult members, they think they're doing a wonderful thing here. And that's the scariest thing of all. Like there's one thing to see a serial killer walking around stabbing people and just because he's a jerk or because he has to kill people, that's scary. Where you have people killing others in the name of I'm helping them or in the name of religion or in this one, like these cult members have invited all their friends to this house and they're going to try to kill them not because they're horrible people, but because they think they're saving them. They think we're all going to die. We can all go to this wonderful place in the sky together. So we're going to kill you tonight. We're all going to send to this place together. And this is the greatest thing we could do. you like, they're killing them in the name of love, which is a really freaky concept for a movie.
1: Yeah. It's, yeah, it's twisted and they're, you know there's just one comet you know one comet shy of being a very real incident here,
0: yeah, and that's the thing yeah what what he's referring to is people don't realize the the heaven's gate cult that there is a was a precedent for this and in Jonestown as well, where there are recorded documented evidence, if you're younger, you may not know this of. A cult drawing in all these people, and then the leader says, Okay, tonight's death night. We all die. Everyone dies. And that's that was the point of the cult. Look, we ascended, and then all these people are dead, all because of one freak case that told them to.
1: Good times. <laughs> yeah. This is a movie we actually enjoy watching.
0: <laughs> exactly. Like I said, my daughter was so enamored by this, she showed it to her boyfriend. So that's the kind of child I've raised right there.
1: I think you've raised her well. <laughs> okay. All right, continuing on. So we've just gotten past the video and we've got pruitt and we have more more talk of where's choi i think we'll start bringing that up at this point yeah it
0: starts getting ominous like did something happen to choi did he stumble onto something that he maybe wasn't ready for here and that's that's where this movie's going here where it's starting to realize to get to the point where okay this is a cult and it's weird now are we actually in any danger here that's that's where the movie's going
1: and it starts building impressively and then we get a moment where we feel like the tension might actually start to be dispelled when David suggests, you know what, I think the video came off a little wrong. Here, let me, let's try something else we learned in Mexico. Let's play a game.
0: Yeah. And this, I, you know, in my, in, in, David's defense, this has happened to me so many times when I show a snuff film at one of my parties. It always brings the mood oh, down.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you bring up, you know, that firing squad video, and it just
0: totally ruins the mood. I just read the crowd wrong every time. <laughs>
1: So David suggests a game like I never, but he says, I want, you know, where people suddenly have to, you know, give in to their most deepest desire and say, this is what I want to do. And then they do it. And it starts off innocuously, you know, uh, Loopy Sadie in the cult, she just says, I want to tell everyone that I love them so much. And it's like, well, we just met you. That's a little weird, but you're weird. So that's cool. And then Gina, the party girl, says, hey, David, you got any more of that cocaine? I'd love some of that. <laughs> and, he, and he just busts out some cocaine right there.
0: Hey, it's L.A. That's what happens.
1: Yeah, exactly. That doesn't seem weird. And, you know, Eden says she wants to kiss Ben, who is um Will's old business partner. And he's a married guy, but he figures, ah, oh, what the hell, it's a game. He kisses her. And she's like, "Nah." And full-on makeout session. And, again, not that weird. And then we get Pruitt.
0: Yeah, Pruitt. <laughs> Pruitt is the ultimate showstopper. (laughs) They always say, like, in stand-up comedy, you didn't want to follow Sam Kinison. You didn't want to follow Howie Mandel. Like, at a story of I Want, you don't want to follow Pruitt. Pruitt's going to top you. Okay, yeah, Yeah. so Pruitt goes up there, and he's like, "Uh, I want to tell you guys a story about my wife. And he tells this tale about he fell in love with a girl, and she was a uh, a painter, right?
1: A painter, painter an art yeah, a painter. You're right. Okay,
0: so she was a painter, and he talks about how she was his one true love and all this stuff. And and this is his remember this is his I want story. I just want to tell you the story. So uh, he's like, well, you know, she died. She passed away. Although then he elaborates. It's not so much that she passed away, as that one time they were in an argument and he decided he was going to punch her as hard as she, he could, and he murdered her. And basically, he felt bad. He went to jail because he physically assaulted and murdered his wife. And then he's like, but I just want to let you know that I don't feel responsible anymore because I've let all that go because I've accepted the invitation in my life. And uh, what's he say here? By accepting by accepting this into my world, that I destroyed that part of me. I'm not capable of murder like that anymore. I'm only here for love and uh and someday i will see my wife in a better place someday when i die i will ascend and we will all meet up again behind this comet apparently and uh <laughs> yeah so it's it's a very very heavy dark story and this is john carroll Lynch's best scene in the movie where he just flabbergasts everyone with how dark the story is and really how okay with it he is he's like you know It happened, but I'm cool with it now because I accepted this, and I just want you to know that you, too, can free yourself of guilt and pain and loss. All you have to do is kind of accept what we're talking about today. Join us. And that is where we segue into one of the creepiest early scenes of this movie, when
1: we have this one woman, Claire, she's a professor, she's very reasonable, she's an old friend of Will's, and she just says, I can't believe this, this is a sales pitch, Mm -hmm. I want to go now. And Pruitt comes in and says, okay, you can leave. Um, Hey, are you in the Prius? My car is blocking you in. I'm going to walk you outside.
0: Yeah. This is the part where are people going to be allowed to leave this party? This is the key here. What's going to happen when someone actually gets to leave? Is is she going to be allowed to? And it gets very ominous, like Matt said, because Pruitt follows her out to her car.
1: Yeah. And Will is watching the entire time. We're on his point of view. David's trying to talk to him, but he's just watching out this window as Pruitt moves his car. Claire moves her car out into this, again, very narrow, curving street, pulls around the corner, and then Pruitt walks up to her. She's off screen. He's off screen. We don't know what happens to her. We never find out what happens to her. So we just have this thing where Pruitt comes back and says, I tried to talk her into staying, but, you know, she wanted to leave, so she left. Is Claire alive? What do you think on this one, Mari? Do you think he killed her? Do you think she
0: just she just left? Okay, yeah, and I, I, I fully agree this is one of the creepier scenes in the movie because, as Matt said, it's left very ambiguous. You have no idea if Pruitt just murdered Claire outside or if she was allowed to leave without incident. You don't know because Will spying is kind of interrupted. David moves in his way and won't let him watch. What I think... Um I'm kind of spoiled on this because I've heard the director's commentary on this movie and oh, where she cool. she flat out the director flat out tells what happened that Pruitt murders Claire and leaves her, bush, her body there in the bushes.
1: That's kind of what I would have guessed too yeah. based on that yeah. but okay I meant to listen to the commentary before this but we had colds this week so <laughs> didn't have time for that.
0: I will say in the movie the way it's presented it feels like he probably killed her but you don't know for sure and that's again so ties in with the rest of this movie that we know something bad is happening but nothing overtly bad has happened yet so maybe we're just being paranoid.
1: Exactly, but again it's it's ratcheting up the tension every moment winding you tight. I don't I don't know any movie that's done it this expertly at least not for a very long time
0: and there's a subplot a a subplot here I, i should mention where uh where will is upset with eden where you know not only is eden in this dippy cult and she's got this dumb little smile on her face but he cannot believe that she is free of guilt over their son's death he's really mad at her he's like it's not fair that i still have to live with the grief and you got this dippy smile like it happened you can't just let it go because you're in a cult and so it's this whole thing where we still don't know at any point how much danger Will may be in. Is it? Or is that the thing? Is is he just upset at Eden because because she's not handling grief well, or is he upset about the cult? And that's the thing. You never know until it's the last second.
1: And yeah, and again, it's also played that Will often comes across as the bad guy mm-hmm. in a lot of these arguments. It has to be pointed out. Because he is flipping out, because he is paranoid, and because there are enough reasonable explanations, there comes several points throughout this. His friends, his close friends, start to wonder, hey, Will, um, I I think you're overreacting here. And it's actually reasonable. This isn't a horror movie traditionally where a character is being told you're overreacting and they're clearly not overreacting. This is one – where he's told he's overreacting, and there's entirely a chance that he might be. Mm -hmm. It's just played so
0: well in that way. Yeah, it's really... The director just skates such a thin line of... Is, Dave, is Will crazy or is he complete, the only person who understands what's going on? That's why I think it's very similar to like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Arlington Road. Because that line, when you can skate that in a movie where a character thinks he knows what's going on, he's trying to warn everybody, but he's not sure if he's crazy or not. And that's really what's going on here. And, and Will is just absolutely beside himself at this point in this party. He does he just he doesn't realize he can't understand why other people don't think this whole party's odd. That everyone else is just walking around and acting and talking as if this is just a normal party. But he's like, and where's Choi? What happened to Choi? And so he's really bothered with the fact that Choi is supposed to be here and he's not here. And again it even it, it keeps ramping up as we go along with this movie that Sadie, the uh the the cult girl decides to walk up and says, you know, you can F me right here. And he's like, what? And again, is this one of those things, is LA or is it a cult? What the hell is going on? She's like, you could have me anyway.
1: I got it it written down right here. Got his quote for quote. I can make you like me
0: so much. You know, you can hurt me if you want. And what
1: the ever loving
0: F? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We're getting a little Manson family at this point. Again, she's this little flower child flitting around And now she's offering herself up sexually to people she doesn't even know. And Will is like, "Uh, this is, maybe Claire had it right. Maybe we should be leaving. This is just a weird, just a weird thing. Until he checks his phone. Yeah. And this is where, this is where it clicks into the next gear. Yeah, this is where it becomes straight
1: terrifying because he gets a voicemail message from Choi who said he arrived at the party early.
0: Yeah. It's not that he, he, he receives a message. Now he finally, there's a certain spot in the backyard. He knows he can get phone reception. He checks right. his phone and he realizes he got a message from Choi three hours ago saying, Oh, I'm at the party. I was there. I'm here early. And this is where it all kind of clicks in, in Will's head. that like, what happened to Choi? Why is he not here? I know he arrived here. What did you efforts do to him?
1: Yeah. And he starts, he, he's gone past the point of, I'm going to be polite about this. He starts flipping out pretty
0: heavily at this point and not entirely wrongly anymore i'd say Yeah, and this is the dinner scene again the party's been going on it's been creepy and again you may be listening to this saying well why haven't people walked out of the party if it's so creepy because it's not creepy scary it's just kind of odd it's kind of an off-putting party it's like a people discovered a cult just want to show you what they learned and how happy they are that no it's not overtly crossed the line that people are in danger yet
1: yeah and these are these are friends still I mean these people love Eden, they love will, they don't know David or Pruitt or Sadie, but they're willing to accept them if Eden loves them and this isn't you know a normal thing you, anyone here can see when you get friends groups that expand and then they could grow grow apart, grow back together. it's just it, it's a it's a weird thing about growing up and growing through grief and what
0: that'll do to people so so will comes back into the party. And again, it's the dinner scene, they're all having a birthday, one of the characters is having a birthday, they're all celebrating, and Will just kind of snaps at this point, now that he's heard this voicemail from Choi, where he's like, "All right, I just got a voicemail from Choi, what happened to him, what did you guys do, and this is where he starts going off, and and Pruitt, who are you, why are you here, who is this Sadie chick? And he's like, this is an effing cult. This is a brainwashing. That's what's going on here. And why everyone's so polite. No one's going to say that. But what the hell is going on here? And Will just snaps. And this is the thing where, like I said, the director treats it so well. Where This is his final step where he knows that something's wrong here. And what's what's so masterful about this movie is it's about to be diffused. All of a sudden, after this whole snapping scene that's very tense and very... You think Will's going to be in danger because he just freaked out the cult... All of a sudden, Choi shows up and knocks at the door. Oh, man, I got distracted by work. And, like, all of a sudden, all the tension gone. And Will's like, oh, my God, I can't believe I just did it. I'm so sorry, guys.
1: Yeah, and it's all of a sudden, it all becomes reasonable to him. It's like, I have been an asshole this entire night. Mm -hmm. Because I am dealing with my grief in my way, and she's dealing with her grief in her way, and who the hell am I to judge?
0: Yeah. So Will is absolutely, fl- I mean, horrified that he ruined everyone's party. He accused his dead his ex wife of running a cult. That he's just being, a, is causing a scene, and he's just he's horrified. He, he apologizes. He's like, I'm sorry. I just I wasn't ready to be here. I'm still snapping over my son's grief. And they're all like, Well, that's okay. And he's like, No, it's not okay. I feel horrible. He goes outside. And uh, again, Will is just having the roughest time with this. And this is where, again, I just can't say enough about the buildup and release of tension. You think everything's okay now. And this is, again, in the Friday the 13th video, this is where now the body comes crashing through the window right behind him.
1: Yes. Yeah, this would be the moment where things start to go into the next level because Will is willing to accept things. He is willing to try to make the most of this evening. Kira, his girlfriend, who actually doesn't become much of a character until this part of the movie, uh, just says, hey, maybe we should leave. And he says, no, I'm going to stick through this. I'm going to stay. And this is where Will sees something that really gets that paranoia coming back. When David hangs a red lantern in the backyard. I mean, why, why is he hanging this red lantern? Why does it raise my suspicions? But there's just something about it that weirds him out enough to a point where he needs to do a little bit more, a little more investigating just to calm his nerves at the very least. Yeah,
0: And let's not gloss over that because this is going to become a major, major part of this movie is that, you know, Will's just in the backyard catching his breath, trying to get, you know, a second uh, wind. And he just sees David go over to this lantern. He's got a lantern in the backyard. Again, these are the Hollywood Hills, all these houses on Hills and they're all visible to one another. It's this big open area in a Canyon where all these houses are up on Hills. And so David has a little red lantern, and he lights it, and he puts it up on a little pedestal, and he hangs it there, and he walks inside. And Will's like, what's that about?
1: Yeah, because he does it in a very ritualistic sort of way. I mean, not not chanting or praying or anything, but very deliberately.
0: And just to spoil it, I guess we have to do it at this point. The red lantern is the symbol... Doomsday is here. Death night is started. This is the hour when we kill our all our guests. So he's putting out the lantern. It's a little symbolic and it's one of these things. maybe I don't know the whole rules of the cult, but maybe if the red lanterns out, now the UFO will be able to come down and pick up our bodies that will know where the houses are. I don't know what the red lantern means, but the red lantern is a symbol that it's time. It is time. And yeah, will
1: finds you know will check you know, checks the laptop that they watched the video on earlier. He sees a video from the cult leader cult leader basically straight up says, this is the time. Tonight
0: is the the night of nights. Yeah, I wrote it down. Here it is. Tonight is the night. Tonight our faith is made real. Just take the step. Take the step. I love you, and I'm waiting for you. Oh, God. Yeah, the cult leader has sent out a video to all his followers. We've been planning this night. and Again, this is so based on what real cults have done in the past. This would be historically accurate. The cult leader... You know, one day the UFOs will come down. One day all of us will die. It'll be the most amazing thing. We'll transcend to the heavens together. And you can just presume that he sent out this video to everyone saying, it's time. So that's that's where we're going here.
1: Murder, suicide time. And, yeah, so naturally, of course, before the night is over, they decide to do... Uh, A toast from an open carafe, I think that's what you call them, of wine. An open bottle, one that hasn't been sealed. They pour out glasses and everyone wants to do a ceremonial toast. And Will is on the verge of, okay, is this real, is this not? And decides to take the safe route and just start slapping all these glasses out of people's hands before they can do anything. He looks like a complete lunatic. I mean, I'm half seeing Will Ferrell doing this (laughs) in my
0: head here. Well, I will say this is a great scene in the movie because, again... They've built up this tension so strongly and you know something's wrong and it's been an hour and a half into the movie or like it's an hour 15 I think you know something's wrong and they have not given you that release yet they have not just flat out confirmed your suspicions and this is where it happens where will is watching all these people in the in the in the uh the kitchen the dining room and they're all toasting from a glass of wine and presumably all those bottles of all those pills of phenobarbital have ended up in these in the uh, glasses of wine And this is where everyone's going to drink. So they're all holding up their toast, and they're all about to drink. Everyone's about to drink this tainted wine, which is the proverbial Kool-Aid that's going to kill everybody. And uh, I think David toasts. And this is the the line that really tips off Will is David says, let's all drink. And then he says, to a better world. And it just clicks in his head right now. These glasses are poison. We are all going to die. This is the moment that they've set this up for all night. And we'll start smashing the glasses out of everybody's hands. Don't drink that. Don't drink that. And really, all all hell breaks loose for the rest of the movie here.
1: Yeah, and except there's a very quick one of one person drinking, and you're not entirely sure who it is until the scene keeps building up. You know someone drank, not really sure who. And the scene just starts flipping out at this point of the cult members. You're ruining everything. Sadie, and our little
0: flower child, Sadie viciously starts growling and attacking Will. You ruined it. You ruined everything. And so all of a sudden, all hell's breaking loose. Yeah, it's just, it's chaos.
1: Yeah he, yeah, he flings her off. She hits her head on a table. It looks ugly. I mean, this is one of the things I was talking about earlier, that this movie does not make violence look cool like it would in a horror movie. Mm-hmm. The violence is not glamorized here. People die badly. People die in pain. And this is not the beautiful transition they were talking about here. Yeah. This is just ugly and unpleasant and people – you know, bleed and make noises that'll haunt you, and it's just—it's
0: so perfectly handled. Yeah, there's the Pruitt death scene is the one that really gets me when we get up to that. But yeah, so anyway, yeah, Sadie gets her head bashed on a uh, dresser, and then Gina, the party girl who drank the wine, starts foaming from the mouth and dies horribly as you know poisons will to, tend to do to a person. And then mm-hmm. David, whose plans of this beautiful death for all his friends has been uh, compromised, doesn't know what to do. So he grabs a gun and starts shooting people. And now people are getting yes. a shot, and there's a stabbing, and I think Sadie pulls out a knife when she comes back to consciousness. She starts stabbing people. And it's just chaos with the cult members murdering everybody at the party as brutally as they can, which is really, really similar to, if you know anything about the Manson murders, there's a scene here on the lawn which is like right out of the Charles Manson story.
1: Right. Yeah. When uh, Ben breaks through one of the windows yeah. and they start stabbing and shooting him on the ground. Yeah. It's,
0: it's just so brutal. And it's like the last 30 minutes of this movie, 100% horror movie. I, if you were patient enough to go through the slow burn to get to this point, it's really going to pay off because it is horrific.
1: Yeah. And cause as I say, it is unpleasant. I mean, you aren't rooting for the killers here. Like you would in a lot of movies. It's like, Oh man, I want to see the new next cool death scene. It's like, Oh, man, I've come to like these people, and I don't want to see them die, and oh, God, what are they doing? Oh, my God, what's happening here? And, you know, eventually it gets down to Will and Kira and um, the doctor's boyfriend, Tommy, who are the only ones who are hiding around this house as they're being stalked by, you know, crazy Sadie, Pruitt, David, and Eden. And the cultists aren't exactly all handling this the same way. Pruitt, he's the Terminator. David's a little confused, Eden is terrified here. Yeah. She's very much just wailing, like, oh my God, this wasn't what we were promised. This is terrible. This is
0: horrible. Dear God, what are we doing? And I was going to say, I really like that, that, you know, in a lot of horror movies, they let you off the hook by saying, well, the murderers are just bad. They're killers. Yeah. Like, in this one, Eden is horrified that it has turned to this. And she's like, it wasn't supposed to be like this. It was supposed to be beautiful. Eden is not an evil person. And that's the scariest thing. Again, like I said earlier, when people are killing in the name of good, like this was supposed to be a beautiful thing. We didn't want to hurt them. I thought we were all going to transcend like little, little rainbows and unicorns up to the heavens together. So Eden is absolutely horrified that it has turned to this. And David's like, well, we just got to finish it now because we all have to end up dead by the end of the evening. So Eden, this is where she sees all along like, oh, my God, I got roped into this evil cult. So Eden is not being let off the hook. Like she realizes at this point, oh, my God, this was not what we were promised.
1: Can I bring up one thing that just needs to be joked about is seeing this movie from Choi's perspective. (laughs) (laughs) Go for it. Choi gets to the party early. Hey, all right. I'm getting to the party early. Oh, shit. Work called me away. He goes away to work for a couple hours comes back. And this he comes back after everything has gone completely insane but before the murdering comes and he's just seeing this whole awkward situation being resolved and everybody being all lovey-dovey. He's at this party for maybe 10 minutes, sees his girlfriend die from poisoning, and then gets shot in the back. You know, this guy was in a horror movie for all of 10 minutes and the rest of it was stuck in LA traffic.
0: <laughs> so wait, he never got to play I Have. He not th- he never got any of the coke. He never got nope, to yeah, he never he, got to pl- to watch the fun recruitment video?
1: No, yeah, he just got stuck in LA traffic, got there for, you know, leftovers and cake and then got shot in the back after his girlfriend died.
0: <laughs> Let this be a lesson to you kids out there. Don't be late for a party. You miss all the fun stuff and you just get there for the killing part.
1: Yeah, you miss all the re- yeah, I mean, who, you know, who wants to miss the snuff
0: film? <laughs> okay, I mentioned it earlier, but the death scenes here are just brutal and horrific and like you said, just not horror movie deaths at all. They're very brutal and the worst is Pruitt where Pruitt comes in there and he starts strangling Will like it's all going to be over soon. We'll all be up there, and then his uh, Will's girlfriend Kira blasts Pruitt in the face with a wine bottle, and Pruitt falls down. And then she blasts him again. And then I mean, he, John he, Carroll, he, yeah, she, he looks up and he makes the most horrific wounded animal sound, just like that coyote at the start of the movie. It's it's horrible.
1: That kind of <laughs> yeah, it's horrible <laughs> It'll haunt
0: you. It's just so brutal that sound.
1: Yeah, because she hits him like four. Five times, and he just keeps making this dying sound, and you know that this isn't a scream, this isn't a, a sound they're dubbing in. This is a, this this feels like a sound of pain. We feel like we're watching John Carroll Lynch
0: being killed on screen here, and it, it's it's just unpleasant to sit through. Yeah. and that was the thing. It's just this is a a violent, violent, brutal movie at the end, and then even the cult leader uh, David. Uh, gets stabbed right through the chest and it's a brutal scene. Although it's kind of funny that David gets killed by like minor character, Tony, Tommy, Tommy sorry, Tommy. Yeah. It's funny. It's one of, one of these things like in horror movies, it's always like the hero and his girlfriend survive. But in this one, it's like the hero and his girlfriend plus Tommy. Like why, why did we get a third survivor? How does Tommy make it to the end here?
1: Well, you know, he's avenging his dead boyfriend, husband, whatever, and he gets to do that, so why not?
0: It's just, I guess it's more realistic that you wouldn't only have the two main characters as the heroes, but I love the random third edition of Tommy as a survivor here.
1: I'm cool with that, personally, (laughs) because, yeah, it it is just this event that's shown to be not totally planned out. Everything is just really random as to who lives and who dies, and it makes sense, because Tommy's one of the buffest guys there. He'd be able to fight his way through. He makes it. I mean, he gets slashed across the chest once, but then, you know, he... He gives David the what for. <laughs> and, uh, oh yeah, and and let's not forget at this point, Eden, overtaken by grief, has shot herself. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Sadie is dying off screen of a head wound. Because that's, that's one of the other cool things you don't see in any other movie. Sadie gets hit in the head and then comes up later as this crazed, knife-wielding banshee. But like in real life, someone who's been hit in the head, doesn't have a whole lot
0: of time to live afterward. Yeah, she eventually dies. Again, people bleed out in this movie. They die. It's not quick, brutal. It's not quick, clean death. They're all just brutal. And then at the end, I mean, miraculously, Will and Kira do survive. Somehow, they and, quote-unquote, third survivor, Tommy, make it to the end. And now we get this fantastic ending that I'm sure Matt has wonderful things to say about.
1: This is one of my, what I would call one of the most haunting endings in horror movies because... We, you know, in another movie, this would be a moment where you'd get a swell of dramatic music, where it's like, "Oh, we're alive," but we don't get that. Instead, what we get is the sound of helicopters. Now, again, anyone who's been around L.A., you know, helicopters are about as common as birds. No problems there. But then you start hearing police sirens, and then you just see Dave. Uh, sorry, Will. You see Will looking off into the distance, and he just says, "Oh my God," as we see the hill across the way. And then the hill is covered by I think thirteen more red lanterns, <laughs> yeah. and we just hear these. We hear screams. We hear gunshots, and th- you know we realize this is, this cult has spread everywhere. They, they talk earlier about how it's in L. A. and New York, and just imagining this isn't just one party of people that's gotten killed. There's probably hundreds maybe even up to thousands of people being killed this night across the country. Yeah,
0: and this is something I don't think everyone catches on first viewing the the uh, resonance of that ending, is that I, I remember kind of explaining it to my daughter. She's like, what happened? And I'm like, well, he looked out, and he saw all across the L.A., you know, the hills, the Hollywood hills, red lanterns everywhere, dotted in, like, every backyard he can see, realizing this is a lot bigger than this, just this party. People are dying all over L.A. tonight, and I just think... The parallel I'm thinking of is Scientology. What if, like, Scientology is so big all over the world, has a death date, 2020, January 2020, it would be just like this. Tonight's the night we all end it. And, like, that's the parallel they're trying to draw here. Like, this is probably all over the world, and it wasn't just this party. Lots and lots of people died tonight because this was the cult death day.
1: Yeah, and because they managed to find a way to rope in innocents in addition to their actual members, I mean, this would be a whole lot more than just, you know— 20 people in a, you know, house somewhere in L.A. Re- waiting to get the comet. Yeah. This is, as I say, hundreds.
0: Yeah, and, if, thousands. and you listen, you listen to that last scene. You can hear screams, gunshots, sirens. You can hear it all over the valley that what ha- just happened to Will and Kira is happening everywhere. And that's the creepiest yeah. thing, and that's the end of the movie. Then we just end.
1: Yeah, we end with what one of the underrated things we haven't talked about is this movie's score, is very spartan, very sparse, but just so unnerving with these various twangs of violins and the like. And it's, oh, it's just perfect at ratcheting up that tension. (laughs)
0: Now, before we did this podcast, you explained to me, you said, you know, I want to talk about that ending. To me, that's like the most depressing ending in a movie you could think of. Why don't you expound on that a little bit?
1: Well, first off, I'm not going to call this the most depressing ending ever, because that's really got to go to the (laughs) mist. I mean... (laughs) Holy, yeah, any of you out there who've seen The Mist, you're nodding along with me right now. Uh, but because this movie was so personal, I mean, if this movie was so involved in these characters, you're kind of thinking this is this microcosm where it's just these characters. And seeing it spread out that way, it's not only this horror of, oh my God, you know, thousands more people are dying. It's, you know what? We may not have had it the worst tonight. But... Mm-hmm. <laughs> That right there is just this this horrifying realization, like,
0: we were lucky tonight. I slapped the glasses out of everyone's hand. That didn't happen at every party.
1: Yeah, I mean, we hear people screaming, so, you know, there might be other survivors, but there might not be. Yeah, it is just, it, the word I use for it is apocalyptic. I mean, it's not an end-of-the-world situation, but... This is one of those moments where once the death toll came in,
0: this would change, you know, laws. This would change countries. (laughs) And it's funny for such a small movie. I mean, this is just a small movie in one setting. It's in one house. And it starts with people hitting a coyote with a car. Then it becomes such a grander scale in the last 30 seconds of the movie. It almost blows your mind. Like, whoa, this is a bigger movie than I was expecting. And then, end credits. End credits, that's right. Oh, what a fun movie. I... I was so happy when you introduced me to this movie. I'm like, Wow, I gotta talk about this one. So it's just one of these wow, it's like have you introduced other people to this movie? Has has this been one that you've had some success with?
1: Uh, if I had friends uh, this would be a possible one, too. Uh, I have very few people that I could introduce it to, but I'm holding on to this one as my number one
0: underrated movie that people need to see. I, I can say if he were still alive, my dad would have loved the hell out of this movie. Yeah, I will. But, I will say after your dad died, you invited me over for that dinner party, and I wisely turned it down. Oh, um, you're one of the lucky yeah, ones. I know. I remember you joined that cult for a while. It was horrible.
1: Uh yeah. I got I got through it. You know, my wife still hasn't divorced me yet, so you know, I think we're all
0: good. Yeah. And I will say, if <laughs> if you feel like I'm being callous, I knew Matt's dad. Matt, he is absolutely right. Matt, when Matt says his dad would have loved this movie, his dad had a hilarious sense of humor. I love that guy. So yeah, he's he would have loved this movie. My parents, my mom, I introduced a lot of movies to her. I don't know if this one would have flown as well. My mom was not perhaps as uh as comfortable with the dark side of movies as your dad was no well, he wasn't
1: either i mean that's that's the funny thing you know it's one of those things where he tried to raise me, not liking horror, so of course I got into horror mm-hmm. and then I was able to introduce him to some of it before he passed so <laughs> all
0: right well i'm I'm really glad again i I knew Matt and I knew his dad and it was it was very sad when his dad died and I will again, I'm just, we're just sharing stories now. The the day that your dad died, you were rushing over to his house to show him a movie that I had recommended to you, which I can take heart yes. It was Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story.
1: Yeah. We, I was going to show him that day for lunch because I used to work about, you know, five minute drive from my dad's place. So I'd go over for lunches, watch movies with him. I find my dad on the floor, you know, sorry for the graphic stories, but you know, and This is one of the things they don't tell you when someone dies, but if they don't suspect anything, you're waiting there with the body until uh, until the mortuary shows up, which can sometimes be up to eight hours. So my wife comes over, a friend comes over, and we don't have anything to do, so we're just watching Walk Hard Kill Time (laughs) while people are calling and I'm breaking down periodically and laughing. And it's like, damn it, Dad, you would have loved this movie too. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> you know, what's funny since we're just burying stuff on the air here. I will say I have a very similar story. Is that my mom died in 2003 and we had the funeral and, you know, we come home and there's a bunch of loved ones at my house and we're like, well, what do we do now? Like, what do you do after the funeral? They don't really show that part in movies. Like we're just sitting around and there's nothing to do. We're all kind of bummed. And so I'm like, yeah. well, let's rent a video. And my Uncle David's like, have you ever seen this comedy called Used Cars? It's called Stars Kurt Russell. And I'm like, (laughs) I wasn't expecting to watch a Kurt Russell sex comedy on the night of my mom's funeral, but okay. And we rented it, and it was like one of the funniest movies I'd ever seen, to the point that I want to talk about it on Staff Picks. And I will always associate it, that's the one, the movie we watched the night of my mom's funeral, because we had nothing better to do.
1: Yep, walk hard for me. So, you know, (laughs) it's just, you know, death and grieving are funny, weird things. There is no one way to do it there's no one way to handle it you can handle it well you can handle it badly you can handle it really badly as the invitation teaches us but overall it's it's a natural thing we all do it we all get past it you know and
0: and everyone everyone (laughs) will have to go through it and as again if you if you have dealt with grief then you will understand the invitation some of the paths that the characters take because they're all again even though it ends in terror and horror they all start from a common place. They had loss, someone died, and again, it's kind of like the movie The Village we talked about earlier. That whole movie was based on grief and loss as well, and people just do funny things when they're in the midst of grief. I couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) Well, at the end of the day, I'm so happy that you introduced me to this movie, and again, I'm finally glad we got to talk about something recent as opposed to me just living in the 80s and talking about movies that are 30 years old. I wanted to prove to people, you know, We will do shows on movies that are recent, and The Invitation was just sitting there begging to be talked about. Because, again, it's an indie movie. Not that many people know about it, but people who do know it all say, wow, that was something.
1: Yeah, because it it sticks with you.
0: Even if you don't love it the first time you watch
1: it, because it took me a couple watches before I, I could say I loved it. But that ending
0: stuck with me so much. It is... It is a movie that will haunt you in all the best ways. Yeah. And Pruitt. Again, if you watch it multiple times, just pay attention to Pruitt, the best character in the movie and how menacing he is. And just all the little things he's doing in the background to ensure that nobody's getting out of here alive tonight. That's his only reason to be there. We're all dying tonight and I'm the big guy. I'm making sure it all goes down smooth.
1: Yeah, and he, yeah, he is just perfect from top to bottom. This dorky, muscular Terminator and bald. The power of <laughs>
0: <laughs> well again, Matt, I want to thank you for joining me and I'm just warning people right now. Matt will probably be my most frequent guest because he's my horror movie guy. Whenever there's an obscure horror movie and nobody knows it on the face of the earth, I can I know I can send it to Matt and he will say, Hey, let's talk about it. I loved it. So that's the thing. He's gonna be on here a lot. So thank you for joining me on your first of what will likely be mini appearances.
1: I, I look forward to seeing you next time. Have a great time out there in Radio Land, people. <laughs>
0: All right, as always, this is Staff Picks, where we talk about the underrated or underloved movies. My name is Mario Lanza. You can reach me on Twitter, at Mario J. Lanza, if you have any feedback, if you have a movie you think I would like to talk about, or if you'd like to come on yourself and be a guest, if you have a movie you're very passionate about, just drop me a line at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com. As always... Uh, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you later. The next movie I am talking about is a very, very obscure comedy from the 80s called Three O'Clock High, which is so obscure, I didn't even know about it. Someone had to tip me off about it, and I just watched it for the first time a couple weeks ago, so this is going to be a fun one. So I will see you for that, and until then, talk to you later. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>
1: Okay. <laughs>